And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop. Today I want to talk about the consequences of war. I was raised a military brat, daughter of a Vietnam veteran, granddaughter of a World War II veteran, and great-granddaughter of a World War I warrior, and distant relatives to other ancestors that wore uniforms in revolutionary and civil wars dating back centuries. It's a family legacy that comes with a strange dichotomy of pride and remorse. Being a World War II veteran was a great source of pride for my grandfather, liberating Europe from the tyranny of a dictator who murdered millions of relatives of immigrants living in the U.S. was widely perceived as a cause worth fighting for. Victory in the face of overwhelming sacrifice was bittersweet. Countless lives were lost, but more were ultimately saved. On the other hand, meddling in the foreign affairs of two sovereign nations for political interests, not so much. Let's face it, war is hell, particularly when battle-weary soldiers wonder what they're fighting for or even if the war is winnable. Just ask any Vietnam vet, was it worth the cost of lives that were lost or social unrest or economic burdens borne by taxpayers at home? When I asked my own father, he gave me a resounding no. Since Vietnam, he's lived under a cloud of remorse at great personal cost. The same could be said for the war on drugs. It's waged on for more than four decades, making it the longest war in U.S. history. More than 39 million arrests for nonviolent drug offenses have impacted or destroyed at least as many families. A disproportionate number of convictions fall on low-income minority youth who are forever branded with felony records that bar them from securing a decent job or even voting in elections. And to what end? That's just one question I intend to ask a former DEA special agent. But first, Nate Nichols has his Marijuana Minute update. What do you have today, Nate? Thanks, Snowden. Today I'm here to provide some context about marijuana law enforcement using statistics from the ACLU and LEAP. The ACLU tells us that states waste over $3.5 billion a year enforcing marijuana laws. In 2010, nearly 52% of all drug arrests were for marijuana. Although white and black communities use marijuana at the same rate, African Americans are four times more likely to be arrested for using marijuana. Between 2001 and 2010, 7 million people were arrested for marijuana possession. In 2010, someone was arrested every 37 seconds. LEAP tells us that the incarcerated population has quadrupled over the last 20 years, making building prisons one of the nation's fastest-growing industries. More than 2.3 million citizens are currently in prison or jail, far more per capita than any country in the world. The United States has 4.6% of the world's population, but 22.5% of the world's prisoners. Each year, the war on drugs costs the United States $70 billion. And since its inception, not one of the stated U.S. drug policy goals of lowering the incidence of crime, addiction, drug availability, or juvenile drug use has been accomplished. Wow. Well, let's introduce our guest, shall we? His name is Finn Salander. The son of a Holocaust survivor, he knew he wanted to have a career fighting for truth and justice. He started out in the Navy, wore a uniform as a police officer, and for nearly three decades he was a special agent for the DEA, 
specializing in marijuana trafficking, among other things. I'm so happy you could be here today. It is a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, so, gosh, we have a lot to cover because this is, the DEA is one of the reasons it's still uh, considered federally illegal, and it has mostly to do with the scheduling of marijuana in general. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the DEA's role in that and um, how you see it could possibly evolve over the next, let's say, you know, coming few years? Well, let's start with, uh, you know, who is DEA, what is DEA? Uh, actually, DEA is uh, the Drug Enforcement Administration, but it's just a name that was actually coined back in 1973 under uh, President Nixon. Prior to that, we were the BNDD, which is the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. And prior to that, uh, going back in time, originally we were the FBN, Federal Bureau of Narcotics Agents. And their, the, the, the sole uh, purpose of the DEA is to enforce what we call Title 21, which is the federal narcotics laws. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that in mind, uh, we also uh, are in charge of uh, scheduling the drugs. And if we were to change anything right now, you know, the states, uh, various states uh, have already made uh, uh, marijuana legal. Uh, other states are on board uh, this year here in uh, our own state, here in Arizona. Uh, this November, we're going to be able to vote to uh, legalize uh, marijuana for recreational use. Uh, and I believe California and Nevada uh, are in the same same boat. Mm-hmm. Uh but DEA, uh, when they schedule these drugs, nothing really changes unless we get marijuana off Schedule 1. Because Schedule 1 basically says that uh, it is uh, not, uh, no uh, medicinal use. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, until it is changed federally, uh, the states, they can uh, uh, you know, uh, pass these laws and all, but at any time, uh, that the federal government would want to come in, uh, they would be able to. Right. So. And shut any of them down. Um, I think they have stopped providing funding, though, for actively prosecuting in states where marijuana has been legal. Is that correct? That is true. Right. right. And so that was, that was actually in, in the, the omnibus budget this year. And I think... Do you really believe that that has made an impact on how often they go after people for illicit marijuana, um, you know, with federal crimes related to marijuana that happen to pass into those states? Well, uh, when you look at the big picture, uh, for instance, uh, the cartels, uh, 60% of the, their profits, the revenue, comes from marijuana alone. I mean, that is uh, from uh, well-researched, when I say statistics. Uh, so if you take marijuana, just uh, marijuana alone, and legalize it, tax it, uh, and basically control it like we do uh, uh, alcohol, we would be able to get the, if you will, the black market out of marijuana. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's... When all is said and done, that is what it's about, getting the black market out. I don't think the average citizen uh, 
really can comprehend uh, how much profit or how much money is made, derived from uh, cartels or, if you will, organized crime uh, controlling, uh, you know, the uh, marijuana. Still a vast majority of weed uh, comes across our borders. Mm-hmm. Even today, with uh, all the states that uh, so far have legalized it and all, still the vast majority of weed uh, is still coming across the southern border. How, and do you, oh, go ahead, Nate. How effective do you think uh, regulating marijuana has been at curtailing the black market in states that have uh, adopted either medical or recreational laws? Oh, I, I, it's had a big impact on it. You know, uh, I, I remember reading something not too long ago where uh, actually uh, it, it was, was a news reporter had made contact with uh, one of the cartel members or whatever, and uh, they were actually complaining about how uh, it's hardly, it, it's getting to the point where they're losing so much that uh, it's, you know, they'll just go to something else, you know, so... Do you, do you think it makes it easier for law enforcement to enforce marijuana laws in states that have uh, legal marijuana? And the reason I ask is earlier uh, I went to a presentation by the group that's campaigning against our recreational initiative. They had uh, Mayor John Southers from Colorado Springs as well as a Colorado uh, drug officer. And both of them sort of spoke to the fact that they feel like their laws have now made it harder for law enforcement to enforce anything related to marijuana. Well, you have to look at, uh, let's back up just a second to answer that question. DEA actually has two sides. They have a regulatory side, and then they have an enforcement side. Uh, regulator- regulatory side, we call diversion. And I think that if you have the right laws in place, which uh, even here in Arizona, uh, a lot of it is based on, uh, on uh, Colorado. And they researched it well. They looked at things. And I know that last year, uh, in 2015, at the end of 2015, they had almost a billion dollars. It was like $850 million that they had uh, generated that could be put to use uh, going back into the schools, uh, going back into, you know, I say prevention, uh, you know, uh, rehab treatment. Uh, and law enforcement itself. So uh, I think with the right laws, you know, uh, to answer that question, uh, it it will not make it. Matter of fact, it will make it easier. So. You know, one thing that I didn't mention in the beginning of the show is that since retiring from, from the DEA, you have uh, joined LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, yes, it's a it's a great organization. Uh, it was started back in uh, 2002. It's a 501c3 uh, organization, and it's made up of former uh, police officers, uh, prosecutors, uh, people in the judicial system, uh, and it's not just from the U.S. Uh, also overseas. I, I know that we have members uh, that uh, the various, uh, whether it's the German or uh, England uh, uh, counterparts, if you would, in law enforcement, uh, they belong. Uh, it, it's people that have been on the front line, if you will, of the drug war. And they have, just like myself, you know, 
uh, it was a process. They've mm-hmm. seen, you know, the, uh, what the drug war uh, has done to our society, and maybe it's just time that we do something different. You know, the, the old saying, uh, I'm not sure who quoted this, whether it was Einstein or what, but what's the definition of insanity? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's doing the same thing over and over, uh, over, and again. over again and expecting, you know, different results. Different results. <laughs> so uh, it, it's, it's time that we, you know, change. And, and the members of LEAP, you know, the, the, the whole platform, part of it is let's, you know, I say change. Legalize, regulate marijuana, but let's get the black market out of, uh, if you will, the drugs. Right. Uh, what was the What was the turning point for you? Oh wow, <laughs> uh, it was a couple of uh, times uh, in, I guess, my career, a uh, couple of cases that I worked, uh, and then uh, at one point it even hit home uh, after I retired. Uh, that uh, really, you know, made me think and say, you know what, it is time that we change. Uh, I don't know if we have time. Uh, I mean, I can tell you. You do. You have plenty uh, of time. One of the uh, stories early, actually uh, somewhat early in my career, I was uh, in Orlando, Florida, and I was working a case uh, where we had, and it was considered uh, one of the biggest grows at that time. Uh, this was back in like the about 94, 95 time frame. And uh, it was a 1,700, uh, 1,800 plant grow, uh, indoor grow. And uh, we basically, we hit the place, we got information, uh, you know, we did all the FLIR and, and all the, uh, if you will, uh, investigation uh, got the warrant to to uh, hit the place, raid the place, and we went in. And the individual that actually was managing or watching the grow was uh, a Vietnam vet. Mm. Uh, he had when we I remember this distinctly on the coffee table uh, inside his trailer. Uh, he had all these passports, his passport, and then information about Vietnam. And this was an individual that his girlfriend was Vietnamese. Uh, and he was actually, the following week, uh, he was leaving to live in Vietnam permanently. Mm. Uh, and uh, he had been hired just to, he was just wanting to make uh, some extra money before uh, he left to actually just watch the place. He had really... He knew very little about growing in itself. He was just to make sure that the timers, everything was working. And mm-hmm. He would just patrol the place a couple times during the day and make sure everything was working. Well, we arrest him, and uh, then he does everything he can. Now, as an agent, you cannot promise a suspect anything. You don't make promises. But he did everything that we asked him to, totally. And even the prosecutor in those days was... You know, asked me, you know, like, well, what do you want to do? And I, th- I said, we, I think that we need to go into, a, uh, at least for this guy, because he has done everything on his end for a reduction in sentence. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we go before the judge, and this is where even the prosecutor agreed, this is what we're going to do. And then the judge says that he doesn't believe that the government should make any, uh, you know, uh, sign anything with a drug dealer. And hammered this guy. Actually, uh, you know, uh, gave him 25 years. 
Oh, wow. Uh, and that really got me thinking. I mean, that was a big, uh, you know, uh, misjustice, uh, you know. And then as time goes on, uh, I actually retired. And uh, there were a few other cases that uh, kind of, you know, made me think and all. But then I retired, and uh, my youngest son uh, was actually is an engineer. He's a electrical engineer with a master's degree. Uh, he was traveling back. Now, he wasn't an engineer at that time, but he was in school. Mm-hmm. And he was traveling back from uh, uh, California, and he got stopped in Arizona right uh, about 15 miles, 20 miles uh, uh, west of the New Mexico line. But he gets stopped. He's driving a Mustang. The Mustang is uh, a black Mustang with tinted windows, and he had a Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, uh, sticker on the whole back window. And so he gets stopped, and uh, the dog, uh, eventually the officer, uh, puts a dog on the car, and the dog is an aggressive alert type dog. It scratches the, the whole side of the car, uh, the paint, and uh, he's not arrested. He's actually cited for tinted windows. And then he, you know, comes home, and of course when he gets home, he tells me the whole story and everything. So I'm livid. I, uh, I call the department, and because I could see that on the ticket, and I asked to speak to the officer, and uh, he wasn't there yet, but he would call me. And so uh, after about 15 minutes, my phone rang, and uh, the officer, we, I introduced myself. I said, you know, I'm so-and-so. I'm retired DEA. And I said, the first thing I want to know is, was my son courteous? And uh, he said, at first he said yes, but then he had a but there. And what was the but? And he says, well, he, he, he refused. To uh, he said that you were a retired DEA and that you had always told him to say no to a search if you're innocent. And uh, I said, yes, I, I did tell him that. And I said, that is his right as, as a person to refuse to, to have his vehicle searched. So uh, he had it searched. He, he did not find anything. I said, why did you uh, charge him with I have a ticket here? Uh, he says, uh, well, it's uh, tinted windows, and I learned in school, he's telling me this, he, he learned in school that, uh, that uh, drug dealers tint their windows. And I said, stop right there. I says, I used to teach interdiction. Uh, and they may be indicators, but it's, you have to have, you know, one after another after another. You, ha- you have to have a series of indicators, right. so to say. Uh, to justify it. To search. justify, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, uh, continuing with the story, so they uh, went into this trunk, and what they did find was tobacco grinders. Now, you know what? I wasn't born yesterday. Yes, tobacco grinders can be used to to uh, uh, grind marijuana. Mm-hmm. Okay, but they were in the packaging. Never had been opened. And they still seize them and charge them with uh, paraphernalia and a sixth-degree felony. Okay. For paraphernalia. For paraphernalia, sixth-degree felony. You know, we just could not understand that. So now we're forced in the, if you will, the system. Uh, 
And uh, I told, you know, of course, my wife is livid, and she's retired military, uh, very, you know, I say, together person and all, and she's absolutely, you know, like, almost coming unglued. So, so they say. didn't find any says, any trace so, drugs or anything in the car? Absolutely not. And, well, get this, this is what makes the story even more interesting. So I try to get, the first thing you do is, you know, obviously you want to get the police report, you know, right. like, what went on? Uh, but in the interim, the car had been scratched. And so I call uh, the uh, Navajo Nation. I tell them the story, and they actually pay to have the car repaired. So mm-hmm. the car gets repaired. Now this is all the case is still going on. The car is totally repaired. They've been, you know, because they knew something was in a twisted way. Something's not right. So then I, I try to get the uh, the uh, police report. And it was stall, 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 stall. Now, anyone can get a police report. You know, once the police report is there, that is your right to get the police report. Well, it is like kept getting stalled, stalled. And finally, I said, enough is enough. You know, I want the police report. So we went uh, over there and got it. And then in the, in the police report, it talks about all this weed that was found in the carpet of the vehicle with not one single sample taken. So now you're really, it's like, I'm totally livid. It's like, you know, as a police officer, if there was weed there, you know, why didn't you take a, you know, a sample and all? In the end, it gets uh, bumped up to uh, the Superior Court, and uh, in the end, everything was dismissed. And the prosecutor was, believe it or not, at least we were told by our attorney, was fired, was fired. Uh, and uh, all worked out well. My son ended up getting his, you know, I say his clearance, and uh, all is good. But if it had been anyone else, if I didn't, uh, I say, know the system, uh-huh. uh, then they would have easily played. Matter of fact, there was a point in it where, you know, I just, you know, you know I'm not paying for a lawyer, so I'll take a, uh, you know, a court-appointed attorney, okay, right. a public defender. And uh, so I tell my son when when they appoint the uh, the public defender, I said, "Look, he's not going to let me come in the room with you, and then he's going to try to talk you into uh, you know pleading." I says, "Just promise me this: you will not plead to anything. I mean, we'll get, end up getting a lawyer if we have to, but you will not, uh, you know." And he did. He, right. he listened to me, and that uh, public defender actually went back in court and said they couldn't. He couldn't represent us. Yeah. It was so funny. He, I mean, I told, told the judge. I mean, he could not represent us, and we, we, then we were forced to basically get our. I mean, if there was such a thing as a kangaroo court, that's a kangaroo court. Right. Uh, so how how often do you think law enforcement officers are really eager to make an arrest over something like that? I mean, it, people who haven't really turned the corner to find marijuana reform acceptable. It seems well, there's still a lot of arrests being made and a lot of people eager to make arrests. Well, it's an easy arrest, is one, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, but I will so- say all in honesty, it is against the law. I mean, right, if, if, you want to, if, if you want to change the law, then be active. I, I t- talk to a lot of, when I say young people, the mm-hmm. younger generation. And if you want to make change, vote. Mm. vote that's the most powerful thing that you have and change it and it's time that we have some changes when it comes to uh, i say marijuana 
Mm-hmm. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. And I think I think altogether it's eight or nine states that have that opportunity this year. Yes, yeah. uh, they're, they're, uh, each year it's like more and more watch what the other states uh, are doing. You know, marijuana, uh, marijuana, uh, uh, Colorado was, is very successful. Matter of fact, one of the naysayers, if you will, prior mm-hmm. to it said, hey, drug usage is going to go up. Uh, well, believe it or not, it, it did. But, but we also said it was going to come back down, which is exactly what it's done. And actually now it is lower than, than what it was before. Right. You know? Nate knows this. Um, there was a study in Colorado, I think we've mentioned it before, but you might want to mention it again, that showed that teen use was down. Yes. It, it has decreased, and uh, right. you know, it, people agree that it's either remained flat or decreased. But mm-hmm. yes. it was very interesting today to hear the mayor of Colorado Springs insist that it had gone up, actually, which the press asked him about that, and he had no real answer about that. Yeah, and Colorado was one of those states that, that had a... a higher than average teen marijuana use prior to the law being passed and now i think it's, it's actually it's in line with the national average it's in line now. with the national average now which i found really interesting yep. you know because it's regulated they're not getting it on the street corner as frequently i imagine right no absolutely matter of fact uh, it's if you were to talk to any teenager in in any state where it is uh, has not been legalized Okay, uh, they will tell you that if you compare alcohol to uh, weed, which is easier to get, mm-hmm. by far it is weed. It is so easy to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, what we're talking about when we say legalize it is treat it like alcohol. You know, you uh, not until you're 21. You know, you tax it, you regulate it, and and you enforce. You know, the various laws that you. Uh, you know, I say formulate for controlling it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as long as that's enforced and done properly and all, uh, just like I say, Colorado. I keep going back to that, but uh, Colorado uh, is a uh, just good news. Basically, is coming out of there, and the other states are taking notice. They really are now. Uh, backing up just a little bit, you know, uh, what is interesting is some of the states that, you know, surround the states that uh, uh, have it legal. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, passengers. I mean, this has come up, uh, I say, recently. Uh, I think it goes back uh, maybe four or five years ago, uh, uh, three years ago, uh, where Colorado, uh, I want to say it was the Nebraska uh, state troopers actually stopped an individual, and what they were using the uh, the pretext and everything of the stop mm-hmm. was his license plate was from Colorado, and that's a known state, that, you know where it's legal, and so they were using that to stop an individual. Now it ended up going up, and it was repealed and all. But what's interesting is of the judges, I want to say of the there were four judges, I believe. Uh, Three, of course, uh, you know, uh, against, but the one dissenting judge, he says, well, uh, you know, maybe in so many words that hey, that was okay, mm-hmm. you know, with, uh, with uh, targeting a license plate that's from a state that, uh, that is, uh, has legalized it. How big a problem do you think diversion is in general from legal states? Because I know several years ago, all now, the states you, that bordered Colorado got together and 
sued Colorado f- over their law, and the pretext was, well, it's negatively impacting our states because so much legal legal marijuana in Colorado is being diverted to these other states. Right. Well, I'm sure, I, I mean, understanding, you know, I say how it works and all like that, I, I would not doubt that, yes, there are, uh, there's illegal entities, you know, uh, but that's, if you enforce it, you know, and regulate it correctly, you basically cut that out, mm-hmm. you know. But right now, uh, I'm sure that there are, uh, you know, black market growers uh, that uh, move it into, if you will, the states. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those people, if they are doing, uh, you know, a little bit on the side, of other words, they have a, let's say that they, they have the... Uh, uh, the uh, license mm-hmm. to grow, and then on the side, they are uh, doing a little extra. Well, they're breaking the law, and they make it bad for everybody else. Definitely. So you crack down on those people. The thing know? that the mayor of Colorado Springs was talking about today is he believes that cartels are using the home grow rights in Colorado. You know, any adult can grow six plants, I believe, in Colorado. And so yes. he is of the opinion that cartels are using this to open marijuana grow houses in neighborhoods in Colorado and then smuggle that marijuana out of Colorado, which... I don't know. I mean, they would have to, I think, really look into that uh, more so. Like I say, uh, I know it's been within the last month that uh, I read the... uh, uh, that article that uh, basically mentioned that uh, uh, some cartel member, some news reporter had actually, uh, you know, interviewed them and they were saying it's getting to the point, you know, where it's just... Not good, you know, because you're trying to smuggle it across the border. It's harder, you know. Now, has the cartel ever come inside our borders and and set up uh, operations? Absolutely, you know, it it has happened. That seems to be an argument for regulating it to me. But that's what, that's exactly, that's Mm -hmm. why you would want to regulate it and all and make it hard, you know, uh, control the licensing. So. Uh, what I found kind of interesting, back to the carrying things over the border from Colorado, for say, I, I go up to Aspen, Colorado quite a bit. And from here, you drive through Utah, which doesn't even have a decent medical marijuana law. And as you, the main thoroughfare that takes you from, from Arizona to this, the 70 freeway goes through Utah for a portion of the drive. There is not a single border uh, agent or any, there's no one checking any of those cars that go in and out. It just seems like a complete, you know, free way for for people to bring uh, product into Utah, and yet no one's looking at it. But then you're driving along the border uh, between California and Arizona, where where both have medical laws and both are about to pass legalization and you get stopped along the route there like two, three times with dogs and all things. Why? I mean, is that is it because of its proximity to Mexico and, the, and people bringing it up? Do you know anything about that? Uh, not really, but I, I would, even in the past, I mean, before any you know, state legalized it and all like that. I mm-hmm. mean, you're going to have checkpoints and stuff like that. Uh, and and part of it is due to the proximity, you know, uh, to the border. Right. And the, you know, like, and, Calexico and... The, and exactly. And, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, referring back to what I said earlier, you know, even, at least at this moment, still the vast majority of, uh, of uh, 
weed, about 75% or so, is still coming uh, across the border, you know, I say south of us. Do you think the do you think that marijuana is actually um, the the uh, highest quantity of drug in general coming across the border, or do you think it's pretty evenly split between uh, marijuana, heroin, um, different drugs like that? Well, they'll move definitely. Uh, when I say to the other drugs, you know, heroin and and uh, and uh, cocaine mm-hmm. can be you know smaller packages. It's more money. You know, cocaine. Uh, give or take, I, I'm not sure of what the prices are like right at this moment and all, but at one time, uh, let's just say uh, wholesale, you could get it somewhere between 25000 uh to 30000 a kilo, okay? Uh, when you talk a heroin, now you're talking 200 plus thousand a kilo. Mm. Uh, and so, hey, if I've got one, say, little package with that profit potential, Verse, you know, as, as you move up, you're getting bigger and bigger. You know, as far as, uh, you know, weed, it's now you've got it in big bells, mm-hmm. you know, so to say. You know, they actually put it in bricks, okay? Right. They, they've got the machines even that can actually compact it so tight and all, and you get it in the kilo bricks and stuff. But at the same time, it's still less product, less chance of, uh, you know, being detected or whatever. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, they'll move uh, and, and you know towards the coke and the, the heroin. Time had an interesting article the other day about how they're starting to smuggle more opiates now and mm-hmm. things like fentanyl uh, and drugs like that. They're seeing coming across the border more frequently because we have such a bad uh, prescription opioid ac- epidemic that contributes. Well, that, to that, that's a whole another realm that we don't even hardly even mention and talking about, and that's the version that we were talking about, where we're talking about uh, pharmaceuticals. And, I mean, the first case that uh, I worked in DEA was a Dilaudid case. And uh, the individual, he was, uh, you know, basically he would order up 30, and he would add an extra zero, so he'd get 300. And the guy was, the 270 pills that he was, uh, you know, overage, he was putting out on the street, you know, at uh, $25, $30 a a pop. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was making some serious money, and uh, that was going on for a while, a long time before just somebody that was really paying attention, you know, asked the right question. Is like, why is this individual ordering up so much? Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but yeah, huge. I mean, that's that's billions Mm -hmm. and billions. That was actually the topic of a question that we got on Facebook from uh, Dan Dees from Mansfield, Ohio. He asks, you know, why are we guiding poppy fields while curtailing opiate medications? What's wrong with this picture? And I, I think what what he's what he's getting at is that, you know, we're we're reducing the amount of prescriptions that are being written for opiates, um, controlling, you know, poppy fields and that sort of thing. Marijuana is still illegal federally. Right. It it just seems like a um, an oxymoron, if you will. Um, why why opiates aren't uh, as as um, why marijuana has to be a Schedule One narcotic in that way? That's, that's a good question. Uh, and if you really want things changed and all, you're going to have to you know get out there and uh, you know we have to get it off a Schedule One. It has to just be changed as long as it's scheduled One. 
uh, it just will be treated differently. You know, with the opiates, there is, you know, uh, basically a, if you will, a medical use. You know, we use uh, Oxycontin for, uh, you know, uh, severe pain, uh, Dilaudid. Um, yet, research that's coming out uh, on marijuana and all, uh, I can uh, attest to this, I, I say personally, uh, I have a co-worker that actually was in a uh, very bad accident a number of years ago, uh, about eight years or so, and uh, it was so bad uh, that I he had a couple of discs that had to be fused and, and just severe back pain. And so mm-hmm. what? how do they treat you for severe, severe, severe pain? You know, they're going to give you some sort of opiate, okay? And he was, he, for years, he's been on it to the point to where he was addicted. And uh, this addiction, uh, you know, the doctor finally he got, I say, uh, went in for a medical checkup and all, and the doctor's like, okay, uh, we've got to get you off this. We've got to get you off this. And uh, he basically, well, what about marijuana? Can we use marijuana? And the doctor totally uh, concurred, and mm. uh, the individual ended up getting his marijuana card, uh, taking a treatment of uh Various oil, low THC, mm-hmm. and some of the other uh, cannabinoids, uh, basically for the pain and all, uh, but very low uh, THC because he's an individual doesn't like to feel loopy or anything, you know, like the, right. the high, uh, and so they, uh, and it's a total, you know, it's like he's a different person. He actually can function, come in and and uh, do his work. Uh, right. Where before, uh, he would just he'd be so loopy on the opiates. That he would call in, uh, I just can't come in today, or uh, you know, and and so he would miss three, four, five days easy, you know, of work. Right. And uh, so that's uh, another story, you know. So what I, you know, what I gain from that, you know, is like uh, we need to do more research mm-hmm. uh, into marijuana, and uh, it needs to. It, it's kind of funny. I have the DEA, which everything you. You read and all that. They so control that mm-hmm. so much. Uh, but as it is getting more and more, and especially the positive stuff that is uh, information that's coming out from the research, uh, I think the walls are coming down and more and more are getting access. More and more, you know, I say medical facilities, researchers are getting uh, access to the weed to, to do the uh, research. And, and uh, it's all good. So. I'm I'm actually really curious to know what um, anyone in the DEA might think of hemp, because hemp was erroneously classified as a Schedule One narcotic, even though it can't get you high, right? And growing it is still federally illegal. It's been legalized in in several states, but I mean, in in the 1980s. Uh, President Ronald Reagan sent out hundreds or if not thousands of DEA agents to go and find hemp fields where it was growing wild because it's indigenous to North America, pull them up, burn them. I mean, do these things come up as topics of conversation when you're working in the DEA, like how ridiculous that is? Oh, absolutely. I mean, sometimes you sit around the proverbial campfire and and just (laughs) laugh, you know, it's like uh, it's so absurd uh, first of all, to, for hemp, uh, has a very, very low THC. It, it's, well, it's practically it, none. It's, it's practically none, right. exactly. Uh, which uh, 
and right now, the state of the market, if you will, uh, China mm. and, and uh, I want to say Russia, uh, I take that back, China and uh, Canada, Canada. Uh, are the two biggest uh, importers of hemp for uh, clothes and all. And, you know, it's a booming industry, if you will. Yeah. Uh, even when you look at, uh, I mean, now we get into a whole other story here. Uh, you know, hemp itself is uh, better fiber than mm-hmm. cotton. Mm-hmm. It's stronger. Matter of fact, the original uh, Levi gene, right. okay, they were made from miners. They, it was made from hemp, uh, you know, canvas, cloth. I mean, right. that's uh, exactly. Uh, the Constitution the, uh, was drafted, is on, drafted on hemp the paper. The first Bible uh, was printed on it. Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so why... It doesn't make sense why no. you would not, you know, want to grow this product. I mean, it could create jobs. It could, it could just open up a whole new market. Not only that, but you and I had spoken once before about how it could remediate soil, you know, from from brown. Oh yes, fields. just by it's just just by planting positive, it in it, right? and and uh, you actually restore that soil back to a good state, you know, mm-hmm. because you can. Uh, I guess with planting, you have to actually uh, change out the plants or even let the, the soil set so it can, by planting uh, hemp, you actually you restore, uh, restore carbon it. into and the soil plus thing. all the nutrients, and it doesn't take any pesticides. It's, <laughs> right. yeah, it's incredible. So I, I, it, it, it's so absurd that it is listed among drugs in general because it's not, but... Anyway, I, I, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, not, not specifically on hemp, but I do have a question about just incentives for law enforcement in general. And here in Arizona, we've seen some of the staunchest opponents to legalizing adult-use marijuana in, from the law enforcement side. Um, our county attorney, Bill Montgomery, the Yavapai County, county attorney, Sheila Polk, are some of the most vocal advocates against the law. And so I'm just curious if you have an opinion on why law enforcement is so interested in continuing prohibition, even if a majority of Americans say that it's time to legalize marijuana. Well, uh, actually, we were talking about that yesterday somewhat, uh, which is uh, we've created a monster. When you when you do that, it is hard to, if you will, kill the monster or, or stop it. And what I mean by that through the years, uh, through the drug war, uh, we have pretty much turned the police into like the military. If you look, uh, the, their vehicles. I mean, I was overseas. I went to, I did a, a tour in Iraq and two tours in Afghanistan. And a lot of those vehicles that uh, we'd go around in, the AMRAMs, uh, some of those come back, we give them to the police departments, to the SWAT teams, and to the narcotics teams, the ones that are making raids and all like that. But we've, if you will, up-armored the police, and we, we've we made the police now look like pretty much, uh, I say, military, you know. Uh, and it's it's not like serve and protect the public. It comes across as we're going to have all the machine guns and the heavy vehicles, and we're just going to come in and crush you, you know, uh, and it's scary. So we, we've created this animal, if you will. You know, any department, if you work with a federal task force, 
you actually get money for doing that and, and for, if you will, signing on to working uh, uh, narcotics. Mm-hmm. You get money for that. Well, pretty soon that department, in a twisted way, depends on that money. That's how you can buy equipment and all. Hey, we, if it, marijuana is legalized, it's taxed, it's regulated, some of that money can go back to the police department. I mean, they're still going to have, you know, uh, funds, you know. Um, so what we have to do, you know, uh, is, is again, you know, I, I keep going back to legalize it, regulating mm-hmm. it. But uh, I think that uh, if you can show even these individuals uh, that there is a benefit and you can, you know, uh, I've debated uh, Bill Montgomery before, uh-huh. and uh, one of the things, and I know that I haven't debated uh, Polk, but uh, I know that she uh, is, is like him. You know, as a matter of fact, she thinks that teenagers will, you know, kids will get a hold of definitely uh, marijuana it's more a big easily. Part of their campaign, e- easy, easier, you know, or, or more easy. Uh, absolutely not. Matter of fact, when you regulate it, again, you go back and you ask a teenager where it's not regulated and not controlled, which is easier to get, alcohol or uh, marijuana? And I've yet to run into a single one that would say that, uh, oh, it's harder to get alcohol. Nobody's checking IDs for marijuana. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, So... uh, you know, how, I, how do you think we better align these incentives? Because to me, it seems almost like an economic problem of misaligned incentives. And so how I know you mentioned giving money back to the police force, but do you have any other ideas about how you can convince law enforcement that this would be a good course of action for them? Well, it will uh, actually give them more time to work on when I say the important things, crime, uh, uh, policing the community, if you will, really working with the community. Uh, Keeping the back, peace. Back, exactly. Well, back in, I want to say the early 60s, uh, a statistic was the closure rate for murder, uh, closing the, uh, the case, uh, was somewhere in the neighborhood. Uh, and don't hold me to this uh, fact, you know, uh, but it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 75, 80%. Okay. Uh, and today, uh, now it is somewhere, the national average is somewhere around, I want to say, 45% or so. Mm-hmm. So it's like, wow, why, why the big difference? Well, part of the big difference is, you know, everybody is working narcotics. Sure. You know. And I know we, we mentioned uh, at the beginning about, like, the percentage of arrests that are marijuana-related, but in terms of amount of time spent, what would you say... Oh, your sense of how much time well every time you arrest somebody you have to process them you stick with that person and and all that time that you are processing them so to say it's time off the street you know mm-hmm. you arrest one person when i when i was in uniform you know uh, you arrest someone it's guaranteed you know no if and or buts uh that's going to take you at least uh, about an hour hour and a half off the street mm-hmm. so uh yeah, not I, to mention follow up too. If you have to go to court, or yeah. well, that too. I mean, that that's a big thing, you know. And you have to be available for court. And a court may be, you know, when I say for the police officer uh, or the agent, whatever, you know. Uh, it, even if it falls on your day off, too bad, you know. You go to court. 
It just seems uh, like such a waste of resources. It is. Yeah. It is. And it is. and um, Nate mentioned the the prosecutors uh, from our neighboring county and from the county we're in right now, um, really coming out loudly and clearly against regulation. Um, and one of the reasons they cite is that you know it it would create an element of more crime, you know, uh, or more usage that could result in. Uh, you know, and impacting our children or more violence, uh, and which is the most ridiculous thing when you consider that that uh, marijuana users are probably less likely than alcohol users to become aggressive. And oh, I would re- at any time uh, when you're actually arresting someone, I would rather arrest someone. You know that at Say if they were high on marijuana because they they're not going to fight you. Mm-hmm. Uh, where someone drunk, they want to fight you and and uh, you know they want to give you a hard time. Uh, yeah. Where marijuana, I never uh, even once in some of the big cases when we do the big grows. Now that that's not to say that you know it, it can be dangerous. You know, like when the cartel controls these grows, uh, but the people defending those, if you will, the cartel members. Uh, that have the weapons and stuff, they're not high on wheat. They're not smoking their product. You know, right. they're they're guarding the place, and so they and they're dangerous. You know, right. but but you're, if you will, American homegrown guy that is, uh, I say, uh, likes to toke, uh, you know, is growing or whatever. Uh, he's he is pretty uh, mild. Yeah, mellow. Yes. But that, that kind of uh, goes back to a question that we got from Kim Janes from, from Facebook. And she listed four categories, alcohol, opiates, um, uh, let's see, alcohol, opiates, medical marijuana, and uh, recreational marijuana. And she said, if you, if you take those four categories, how does... Uh, crime with aggravated assaults relate to it? And I think you really just kind of answered is, that. Absolutely. You know, is uh, marijuana is, a uh, matter of fact, they'll even tell you, matter of fact, you know what the most dangerous, uh, as far as policing goes, uh, the most dangerous uh, type of call you can get called to? A domestic. Mm-hmm. And a domestic with drinking, very, very dangerous. Well, and weapons. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, no question. And nobody's ever uh, died from marijuana. Nobody's ever uh, overdosed from it that we know of anyway. Right. right? And but alcohol. Yes. And right. And, and what I would like to say is anything that for sure that I say and all I, I want you will the listeners out there. Do your own research. If I say something, uh, you can easily, when I say back it up, research it yourself. If, if I quote a statistic, uh, go and look it up for yourself because that is one way that uh, when, when I look at this, because I've, I've been in debates before, and a lot of times, if you will, the law enforcement side uh, will use uh, statistics and uh, maybe quote some that if you dig down, you really see it's like, wow, that's uh, it's not right. Mm-hmm. It's not. Uh, I mean, no one will argue the statistic that uh, 
when the drug war, uh, what is caused with the numbers of people that are incarcerated, how, uh, if you will, incarcerating people itself has turned into a uh, for-profit industry, uh, which just recently, uh, about two weeks ago uh, or so, uh, the Justice Department said that they were actually going to probably stop using, and then uh, I believe ICE uh, came along and and said that, well, they're going to monitor it and kind of watch it, and and they'll see, but they may go, because in the the system of incarceration, ICE, I think, uh, has like 54% of the market, if you will, uh, so, but, uh, yeah, that, and that's going to change. I mean, I think people are opening their eyes, they're listening, they're, they're doing their research and, and changes are coming about and, and it's all for good. And I tell you what, this November, Arizonans have a great opportunity to voice their vote, mm-hmm. <laughs> to vote, to vote and, and make changes. And it is time we change. Yeah. I agree. Wow. Well, I think this is just about it, unless you've got something else to add, Nate. Uh, no. I think okay. Well, then thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, I'd like to uh, thank all of you for joining us today, all of our listeners. And I welcome you to check out the amazing work of LEAP, that's Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, by visiting LEAP. Dot cc and visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com to learn more about uh, Finn Salander and our topic today. And you can also download the podcast of our show. I'd also like to thank Nate Nichols for the Marijuana Minute and Wendy West, our amazing producer at Star Worldwide Networks. And thank you again for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop, the Cannabis Reporter, wishing you an amazing day. Oh